Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Podcast, the New Books and Political Science Podcast specifically. And today I'm joined by David Carroll, who's going to talk to us about his new book with Cambridge Elements, which is a part of Cambridge University Press. And this new book is titled Red, Green, and Blue, The Partisan Divide on Environmental Issues. This is an interesting new series from Cambridge University Press, and I'm going to have David tell us a little bit about that. But first, I want to welcome David Carroll to the New Books in Political Science podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this project, Red, Green, and Blue. Uh, Hi, Lily. Thanks. It's great to be here. I came to this project in a kind of unusual way. Uh, I'm a uh, associate Professor of Government and Politics at the University of Maryland, and a lot of my research has concerned political parties and interest groups. And I did a book several years ago called uh, Party Position Change in American Politics Coalition Management. Um, and I wasn't planning actually to work on the environment um, or to do that much more about parties changing positions on issues, but I was actually um, Uh, asked to write a paper about that for um, a think tank uh, here in the D.C. area called the Niskanen Center. Uh, And um, it's very nice and flattering when some non-academic actually reads your your, uh, academic research, you know, especially several years later. Uh, It's very encouraging, you know. Uh, And so uh, the director of the center, Jerry Taylor, said, why didn't you talk about the environment in your book? I said, well, you can't cover every case. He said, would you think about looking at how the environment has changed as a partisan issue and maybe with some uh, view towards possible trends, future developments? So I said, sure. Uh, and then after that, uh, it was suggested that this could maybe uh, work in an expanded format for this new Cambridge um, element series. And uh, that's really how it came about. I've long been interested in uh, how parties develop the platforms that they have, why the the interest groups or um, societal groups that are aligned with the, the, the two parties are in the coalitions in which they uh, find themselves, how that happens. I, I think it's a fascinating um, topic. Uh, and I've been interested in the environment like, I guess, any other person, but it wasn't a research focus. So I definitely come to this from the parties and interest group side and the political history side, not from the environmental studies, although I've tried to learn from people like that and to cite them. And and so I wanted to ask you a little bit, and, and this is what this this very slim book, but, you know, really well composed and, and very detailed in lots of interesting ways. This book goes through, as you note in it, you're, you're looking at the various ways that political actors, the parties, um, the interest groups have all coalesced and to some degree shifted here and there around questions of environmental policy, um, conservation, as you know, the name change. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about the broad sort of scope um, of how you are both looking at these questions, not just the partisan divide, but also the political history around conservation and environmentalism? Yes, that's a a good question. Uh, This is 
Um, the modern environmentalism, as we know it, is a relatively recent issue compared to some other topics that are in the news. For example, tariffs are in the news because of President Trump. And, you know, tariffs as a source of political controversy go back to the revolution. Um, the environmental issue is not that old. The earliest version of it in the early 20th century is the concert, the question of conservation. And you see debates around that in the early 20th century uh, between Theodore Roosevelt and his supporters and William Howard Taft. But what they mean by conservation is not the same as modern environmentalism in a number of ways. They're concerned about natural resources. They're concerned about private interests abusing them. Um, but um, very much still more believing that the, the issue is just scientific management in the public interest and that uh, to maximize economic growth, um, less concern about environment in, let's say, a kind of mystical aesthetic, metaphysical way. Um, and of course, the, the conservation movement was tied in, as many progressive causes were, with a lot of other uh, baggage that today people would find very repellent. I mean, with eugenics, with racism, um, the it's not just that most People uh, were racist in that time by our standards, but um, some of the leading conservationists wanted to conserve, um, you know, flora, fauna, and the, the best breed of people, so to speak. Um, you find that with people like Madison Brown, who's the founder of the New York Zoological Society, savior of the redwood, savior of the bison, and super racist you know, didn't want immigrants coming from Eastern and Southern Europe. They weren't white enough. So there's there's a, a, a big history of that. And then the, the, con the part of conservation that becomes broadly accepted is there needs to be some uh, management of, of natural resources in what's seen as the public interest by experts. But for a long time, there's really no then in the middle of the 20th century, no political controversy about this. It's just something everyone is sort of for on some level. And you see, and I show this in the book, it's barely mentioned in party platforms, just very token discussion or in, in, in the speeches of presidential nominees, which is another way to, to attract party positioning. There are not a lot of controversies in Congress. Issues that today... Uh, looking back, we would say, oh, this is an environmental question, were processed in a very different way. So there was a big fight in the early 50s. Um, oil uh, uh, in the Thailand's swampy area on the coastline of the United States and places like uh, Louisiana, does this um, belong to the federal government or does this belong to the state government? But no one is saying, as they might today, hey, maybe you don't want to do so much offshore drilling. In, in, in that ecologically fragile area. That wasn't part of the debate. And there were debates about should the government build and develop nuclear power or should that be done by private industry? And the same thing with big hydroelectric dams. But it was all processed through kind of the New Deal framework of, you know, big government versus private sector. That was the issue divide. It wasn't about uh, the environment. And that the modern environmental movement really arises in the 60s uh, and, and 70s, and then uh, that starts to change. The issue as we know it 
uh, develops. They, the term environmentalism actually mostly supplants conservationism. You still hear that term, but it's used much less. And now it's used much more just for uh, people focused on endangered species. When they in the past, it would have been used for people who are fighting the construction of a, a plant, uh, you know, a, a dam or something like that. So uh, conservation was really a nonpartisan movement. That's another important point. It's, it was a nonpartisan movement. It was a very elite movement, was not a, a big mass uh, following. Um, and it was, and, and then there was just no controversy for a long time. And so you can see environmentalism is one of the new uh, like social issues that arises starting in the 60s and 70s, along with other issues um, like uh, feminism, um, LGBT rights, uh, um, rights for people with disabilities, and just a whole series of questions that in the mid 20th century were just not on the agenda. And that's, I mean, you really set this up in in such a really clear and smooth manner in the book because you do go through this definition change and also the the sort of different political actors who were involved. And and the thrust of the book, and and again, this is these are this is an interesting series, and I want to ask you a couple of questions about it. But I do want to get to the sort of thrust of the book is really about this very careful study that you did in terms of um, coding words and the speeches that presidential nominees gave, the platforms themselves, um, and where you start to see the the sort of what we consider the polarization setting in um, around environmentalism as it moves into more so the Democratic Party. Can you talk a little bit about um, the way that you set up the research and, and what you found as you were doing it? Well, yeah, I think the challenge in studying uh, American political parties, um, and this is a party story in the end, uh, is that they are very amorphous that, you know, other countries, parties have formal membership and, you know, you can be expelled from a party. Um, in the U.S., it's much harder to say where the parties begin and end. So if we want to say, uh, if we want to look at the question of where the parties are in the environment and how that changed over the time, we need um, to look at that from as many angles as possible. Um, so as you mentioned, I look at, um, candidate speeches. I look at party platforms. I also spend a lot of time looking at, um, uh, congressional votes on the environment and not in the sense of doing a legislative history, how we got the clean air act, how, uh, this or that bill was passed, but to look at the, um, the ratings from the league of conservation voters, um, and in other ways to just see how uh, the parties are aligned, because I said conservation was a nonpartisan movement in the early days of environmentalism, of modern environmentalism. There still uh, also was a lot of bipartisan support and there was um, bipartisan opposition uh, as well. Uh, and that today for people looking at the issue, it's so associated with the Democratic Party. We see now uh, the Democratic presidential candidates all have to come out with their climate plan. You know, Richard Nixon uh, created the Environmental Protection Agency and signed the Endangered Species Act. Uh, it it was the, the, the I, I look also in terms of, of data at the behavior of interest groups. I look at their ratings. I look at their endorsements. And I use some archival research on the deliberations within the Sierra Club. And they were very hesitant 
to get into partisan politics. Um, they, they, first of all, they were hesitant to get into electoral politics at all. Um, and then they, as much as possible, wanted to avoid being associated with one party or the other. Um, but uh, the logic of the two-party system in the United States is uh, very strong and the dynamic is very powerful. And uh, it's not easy for a group to uh, avoid being sucked in. Uh, and they certainly have not. Um, and, and you talk about also the sort of development and growth of those groups themselves. That's right. That's right. So I, uh, I was kind of surprised when I went back to look, I learned some of this, the Sierra club didn't really exist outside of California where it's still based, although it has a Washington office, of course, um, it didn't really exist outside of California until the 1950s. Uh, and even then it was mostly a West coast organization and other prominent environmental groups that we know today, the league of conservation voters, whose ratings I use so much, uh, in this study, they didn't exist until the end of the 1960s. And they were kind of a splinter. Uh, and David Brower, who had been the executive director of the uh, Sierra Club and was forced out, he created new organizations. He created the League of Conservation Voters and Friends of the Earth. Um, and part of that was, I think, personality conflicts and some divisions within um, you know, environmental movement. We could talk about how, how it's changed. Uh, it's in beyond partisan terms. And, you know, one of the things was he was against nuclear. He, he came to be against nuclear power, which environmentalists weren't always, and which some of them are reconsidering now in the basically because of climate change. But uh, in the seventies, that became a prominent cause environmentalism against nuclear power. And you don't see that in the Sierra club in the fifties, um, or the sixties. And there's a tremendous growth though. The, the Sierra club does become a national organization. It becomes much more prominent. The league of conservation voters, as I said, is founded and becomes active in campaigns from the beginning, from the seventies, before the Sierra club is willing to do that. Um, Friends of the Earth. There are other groups, more um, um, say militant groups like Greenpeace. Um, so there, and, and and new groups have continued to be founded. But yeah, there's an explosion, and which is true, as I said, of 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 uh, groups in many of these issue areas that weren't on the agenda in the mid 20th century. All the right, the rights revolution that it's been called for all all sorts of um, marginalized and disadvantaged groups, and I think environmentalism. Um, can be seen in some ways. I mean, as it, it's complicated because the people who are active environmentalism usually are are not marginalized people at all. But um, it's this activism, I think, um, coincides with all those other movements. And and you do um, a really careful study. You you pull together, as you note, um, you know, sort of the ratings from uh, the various. Uh, interest groups on how members of Congress are supporting legislation or not. Um, and you also look at the speeches that that candidates give, that's the, where the party platforms are. And so pulling all of that information together, what did you trace in terms of this understanding of the partisan divide? You know, the title of the book, The Partisan Divide on Environmental Issues. Then you, you know, you start out saying in the 50s and 60s, this was not controversial, but it becomes more controversial. 
Yeah. Well, first, there's really just no discussion of this topic or minimal. Uh, Then, except just conservation is just something people give lip service to. But when it becomes a controversy, it's still not a partisan controversy. And of course, it emerges at the time that uh, we now look upon as the low point in terms of party polarization in modern American history. Uh, in, in the 1960s and the 1970s, this is a time when there's still many uh, conservative Southern Democrats and moderate uh, Republicans, especially from the Northeast, both almost extinct species today. Um, and but what, in Congress, what I, what I found was a couple of interesting things, um, one of which was a new thing that I think is interesting from the standpoint of the study of parties and representation that I didn't find in my previous book. So two, two major things, well, well, three things. The main, the main thing is there is a very, the issue today is very partisan in Congress. That was not true to when, when they started rating members of Congress uh, around 1970, the leak of conservation voters. It changed very gradually. Uh, it's, it's a really an evolutionary story, not a revolutionary story. There's some key moments, Ronald Reagan, as on many other issues like abortion and gun control, he's important in kind of branding the Republican Party on one side of this issue, not the environmental side. But in Congress, it's quite gradual. And the two big things that I think that that I noticed were initially members of Congress uh, who are not voting, you say, well, if they're not voting on party lines, how, how do we understand their voting patterns? There are district interests. So people from rural areas, from agricultural areas, from areas that where mining is an important industry, they're less supportive of uh, environmental causes. And in the early period, uh, a lot of them are Democrats because, uh, you know, uh, the realignment that we've gradually seen had yet to occur. So many people from, I mean, West Virginia was a very Democratic state, Kentucky, where mining is, where the oil industry in Texas and Louisiana is, and the rural areas generally, there were many more Democrats representing them. Uh, And uh, over time, what we see now is, yes, there has been a realignment. And so those constituencies today, for a lot of other reasons besides the environmental issue, have generally Republican uh, representatives and senators. But I also show that um, in the same constituency, because of the alignment of environmental interest groups with the Democratic Party and business interests that are in conflict with them, with the Republican Party, in the same constituency. So when you have uh, some states that, that have a Democratic and a Republican senator, the, they differ. Those two senators do not vote the same way on the environment. And if we track those uh, states with uh, what are called mixed delegations, one Democratic and Republican senator, it's not the same states, but there are always several states in that category. And if we track just that population of senators, we see a great uh, polarization, a growing divide between the parties on the environmental issue since the 70s uh, gradually. And so it's not just Democrats don't represent West Virginia in the South anymore. That's part of it. But even representing the same state or the same district, Democrat and Republican will vote differently on environmental issues. And the the other thing that I found that really was interesting to me was um, in the early days of the issue in Congress, uh, people who wrote about it in the 70s showed that the same... uh, the same characteristics that predicted support for the environment among ordinary people it did so in Congress as well. So the, the constituency for environmentalism tends to be young and highly educated. 
And within Congress, uh, the age variable and educational attainment were both predictive of members of Congress position on the environment, controlling for their party, controlling for their composition of the, uh, you know, the, the, the workforce in their district, economic interests, control for pretty much everything else. And um, if we look at surveys today in the public, those factors are still important. Younger people, more highly educated people still are more concerned about the environment than others. But in Congress, that's much less true today. Those factors are, are much less predictive than they were because of the polarization. And that's something that, so those per, there's a lot of studies about how, how, how much do the personal characteristics of representatives matter? You know, often looking at things like race and gender, but other factors like age and education may also matter. But what I show is that's really very contingent. Um, and when the party pressures are strong because of the party interest group connections, uh, those factors may play less of a role than they than they would have at a different point in time. And I wanted to ask you another sort of question about um, one of the building blocks that you integrate to show some of what's going on in the United States and the particularities of the American sort of party system is you pull in a bit of a comparative perspective to look at environmentalism in um, other developed countries, particularly Western European ones. Um, Can you talk a little bit about some of that comparative understanding and where the distinctions are? Yes. Uh, you know, I went to graduate school to be a comparativist and it didn't work out that way. I was going to be a Middle East scholar, but in a way it's a return to my roots. Yeah. I, the uh, Often people talk about American exceptionalism. And um, one thing that's distinctive about the United States is the strength of the two-party system. Uh, even countries that have two major parties often have several significant minor parties. And we really don't. I mean, the Green Party in a very flukish election in 2000 was important. But uh, other than that, not so much. And it's not really so much of an environmentally focused party anyway, as opposed to just a left wing party. By comparison, um, many other uh, countries, many other uh, advanced democratic wealthy countries that maybe you could see as the peer group uh, for the United States, uh, they have uh, green parties uh, elected in their parliament or in their national legislature, uh, holding seats. And in several cases, these parties have been part of uh, coalition governments. And so they've controlled um, cabinet ministries. Um, and the United States is unusual in that we don't have any green uh, members of the House or the Senate um, we don't have coalition governments in the same way either because we don't have a parliamentary system, but it's just unusual. So the way it's worked in the United States is that um, these movements that in countries with different electoral systems might create their own parties, um, they often get uh, channeled into the, the two-party system. And my <clears throat> argument is basically the Republican Party even before environmentalism came around, was the business party. Um, And the alignment of groups uh, with parties is often dependent on what other groups are doing. And so it's path dependent. Uh, You know, the organized labor came into the Democratic Party, which was really an agrarian party, talking about in the New Deal period, uh, had been mostly an agrarian party because 
the Republican Party was the business party even then. So they just had more, they didn't necessarily agree with farmers about everything, but they were in more direct conflict with the business interests. And a generation or two later, it's the same story for the environmental movement. They There are certainly uh, tensions uh, sometimes between the environmentalists and uh, labor. You, you see that the AFL-CIO is not yet on board with the Green New Deal plan, but there's much more direct and consistent conflict with business interests, with the um, uh, oil and gas, uh, coal industry, uh, forestry, the auto industry, where it concerned emission standards. Um, and so it was just easier for Democratic politicians, I think, to uh, uh, reach out to environmentalists than for Republicans to do so over time. And so I also wanted to ask you a little bit about the the series that this book is published in. It's called Cambridge Elements, American Politics. Um, and the series is edited by Francis Lee. Um, and, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about this series, because it's not, you know, it, this is not a, a full length book, right? This is, but it's a very good brief book. Um, and, and I wanted to know a little bit more about this Cambridge Elements series. Sure. Um, so I would say maybe more of a novella than a novel, if you want to say it like that. It's about 30,000 words. It's a paperback. There is not a hardcover version. Um, it's also part of the Cambridge Core digital series, which universities libraries subscribe to. Um, so the idea behind the Cambridge Elements, uh, this is part of the uh, Cambridge series uh, elements in American politics, but there are several other element series in political science and in other disciplines, is that there was a need that was felt for a kind of format that was somewhere in between the conventional article, which is getting um, often more and more brief and more and more narrow. Uh, and what what is necessary to uh, get into a journal, often now it has to be very narrowly focused on a test of causality in political science, maybe different in other disciplines, um, that um, that just doesn't uh, encompass all the kinds of studies of important phenomena that we need. Uh, but it, not everything needs to be a 300-page uh, tome either. Um, and so there ought to be something in between. So as you mentioned in this study, I, there is um, historical scope, you know, whether I'm talking about the voting patterns in Congress or the alignment of the parties that you can see in platforms or presidential candidate speeches or the development of environmentalism away from the kind of racist conservationist movement and uh, to this kind of more woke version that we have today, that's something that takes many decades. Uh, and it's hard to do that in, a, in an article. But um, it's a single case. You know, uh, I'm adding to a literature about parties and interest groups. I'm adding some, you know, broader points that are new, like about how the members uh, personal characteristics matter only in certain circumstances. I think that's a you know a broader interest. Um, uh, but the idea of the elements is that you you should be able to uh, approach a topic like this within you know a reasonable length. Um, and I think it's readable and it's approachable for students for under I think for undergrads as well as for graduate students. So that's that's the idea of it. And I really hope it, that I'm honored to be part of it. I think I'm the fifth one in the American politics series. And I, I really hope that it continues. It's, it's a peer reviewed 
the Cambridge University Press, like uh, like any other, like I my previous book, which was also with Cambridge, which was uh, considerably longer. Um, so the, the, the basically the process was the same. Um, the differences for the author are that um, it comes out more quickly. It comes out only several months after it's finally accepted instead of a year. And wow, that's great because, as you know, academic writing, you know, by the, by the time it's accepted and then it's revised and it's, but it comes out, you, you know, you're on to the next thing. And it's so long ago since you wrote it. That's what, you know, it's so different from the, you know, now ever at Twitter with instant reaction. Um, but um, so the elements to me uh, is a very promising development in, in academic publishing um, that I think is is good for teaching. And I think it's, it's good for research. You, you should be able to uh, make a contribution that doesn't necessarily fit neatly in a 10,000 word article, but that doesn't need to be a, you know, a massive volume that takes years and years. So uh, that's, that's the, that's the hope anyway. Well, I think, I mean, I think this is a a really nice asset. And I can see using, I personally can see using this in my public policy class, because I think it's a really good sort of pricey on understanding environmentalism as a policy and, and in a partisan context. So since you did mention other projects, I'd love, David, for you to tell me a little bit about what you're working on now. Okay, so I am working on one of those massive tomes. Um, you know, I mean, uh, but uh, the, I, for a long time, I've been really interested in elite opinion, uh, and I was really interested in issue areas. I, mean, I always come to politics through looking at issues and patterns, and I found there's some issues on which there wasn't a partisan division as much as the president was um, uh, in conflict with the Congress, regardless of you know which party controlled which branch of government. Uh, and I started looking at that with trade policy, my first article many years ago. And uh, I got interested in that as a broader phenomenon. And my, I came to the view, which is not what the literature says, that for the most part, for some structural reasons, the president reflects elite opinion when there's a dominant view among elites. There isn't always. Um, and elites aren't always at odds with the public, but sometimes they are. Or they're at odds with an important interest group. Uh, and then uh, I think the president is going to be more likely to represent them uh, than Congress is, unless that interest group is central to his party coalition. The interesting thing about this is I you know, had this idea for quite a while, and then Donald Trump <laughs> pops up. And Donald Trump, Donald Trump, you know, is a challenge to pretty much all of political science. Yes. You know, as a co-author of The Party Decides, and certainly the party did not decide on Donald Trump. <laughs> Have to has to be acknowledged. They may decide on some other people. <laughs> so so uh, and I thought, wow, he's going to ruin both books. But no, he actually he's I think an interesting exception that proves the rule because he was definitely not socialized into elite opinion. We know he's not a big reader. Um, he um, and so he kind of shows I think that this this um, behavior by the president is not automatic because he certainly does not reflect dominant elite views on many issues. But um, it's, it, you know, it, it's based on the premise that the president and his close advisors will reflect those views. And I think that's a sound generalization, but all generalizations can meet exceptions, and he is one. So um, I think that makes it kind of a more, even more interesting and more timely uh, book project. Well, when you finish that project, will you come back on the New Books podcast and talk to me about it? Absolutely. Uh, that would be that would be great. So I want to thank you, David Carroll, um, with a K, uh, for joining me today to talk about Red, Green and Blue, the Partisan Divide on Environmental Issues. And this is published by Cambridge University Press, specifically Cambridge Elements in American Politics. 
Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you.